Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I am the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies, and that's a little awkward uh, because I'm not trans and I'm not queer, right? Uh, but the truth is that allyship is a little bit awkward because it's predicated on the world being broken. If folks weren't being dehumanized, right, then we wouldn't need to have other people uh, to come up and try to ally up. Um, it's also kind of just a reflection of where the world is right now. Uh, there's a lot of planned obsolescence about this job that I have. Um, it really should be um, filled by somebody of trans or queer experience, but because the ultra-Orthodox world, the, the yeshiva world, the Orthodox world, for the most part, uh, needs a male-presenting rabbi to be taken seriously, and the education that women get in the Orthodox world doesn't provide um, the, the resources to be able to answer questions in Jewish law the same way, it's just gonna take some time for somebody uh, to be able uh, to occupy that space from their own lived experience. And that's part of, and perhaps the biggest lesson of allyship, is that my experience is different, right? To be an ally, it's often because you occupy a different space than the person who's being marginalized, depressed, dehumanized, etc. cetera. Um, no one's life is ever hypothetical. And one of the things that rabbis in particular need to be sensitive to is that uh, when the Talmud uh, discusses things, it's very often in a theoretical space. So if a person gets out of jail, Erev Yom Kippur, and you can only do one mitzvah, what mitzvah should you do? So that's a great question, and that structure is helpful in trying to prioritize. But that person doesn't have a pulse, right? Because it's not real. And so when we think about answering questions as opposed to answering people, right, it's the person that we're supposed to respond to. And so even though we're going to be talking about what happens if, right, there are people that are struggling, real people with real hearts that are really suffering right now. And so it's important when we think about allyship that it's not that I have a box to check and so like therefore I'm doing my thing because I have to do it, but you can't separate out the needs of the other, right, from the work that we're doing. Um, when I think about allyship, I think about it in um, two different categories. One is the individual and one is the communal. Uh, so I'm gonna say some big principles and then would love to uh, invite for some, for some questions. The Torah tells us, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, God's candle is our soul. And God models for us how to respond to darkness. God responded to that initial darkness by saying, Yehi or let there be light. And so in the darkness of this world, we are that light. Each one of us is a candle, can be a candle. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is where in the darkness do I want to stand? What do I want my candle to be? And that is really person specific. There are ways in which each person here can do things that nobody else can do because of who they are in relationship to who they can help. This is, I think, what Hillel means when he says, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Because nobody else is me, right? Nobody else is the result of my unique life experiences. And that's something that is true for everybody. 
So we think about that, I think it's helpful to think about that in terms of a candle. It's not a big light, but it can get into the cracks and the, the crevices of the universe to help provide light for those who are sitting there in darkness. The second is the communal light. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, um, in the South, certainly racist, certainly racist. But when I was growing up, um, it wasn't cool to be out as a racist. You had to wear a hood, right? You needed to meet far out from society because like you would lose your job. Like you wouldn't be able to like function society because society say like, we're, like we, we, we've, we've processed, like we're past that. But today you don't need to bring your hood anymore. You can be out in your, with, your tiki torch, with your tiki torches and your khakis and the administration says they're fine people on both sides. That's a function of the diminishing of the communal light. That society isn't, we should all be protesting all the time, right? There are kids in cages, there's no shortage of the world being broken. And, and when society goes about its business as if that's not happening, it will continue. And so that's a function of the dimming of the communal light and within Jewish tradition, it is um, most aptly uh, portrayed Saturday night as we transition from the holiness uh, of the communal and the collective of the Sabbath to then Saturday night going into the mundane, into that darkness, and we use a multi-wick candle, right? The halacha is that you need to have, right, more than one wick, and that represents people coming together because in times of difficulty and in struggle, solidarity and unity is the, is the greatest strength. So those are kind of the two different um, modalities. We actually find this paralleled within Jewish law. I'm just going to say the terms for, for those for whom this is, is interesting. But when we think about spiritual practice, right, there's an idea of mitzvah, which means it is a greater mitzvah to do something yourself than it is to have somebody else do it. And we also have a, a, a principle of that the glory of God is actually in the multitude of people showing up. Right? Sometimes, for example, we're going to read the Megillah right, for Purim. The custom is that one person reads and everybody, right, so too by Havdalah, right, we have one person making it and everybody answers, as opposed to, let's say, the lighting of Shabbos candles, right, that people have their own custom to light, they light. So those are actually two different modalities in spiritual practice, right, that sometimes in my relationship with God, it's important for me to show up as me, and sometimes in my relationship with God, it's important for me to show up as part of the collective, as being part of something that's not just about me. And both in Jewish law and within social justice, uh, it's a function of impact, right? Which one will actually achieve the intended effect? Sometimes, depending on who you are, your name on a list of 5,000 names is significant. Sometimes it's just a name. You just need 5,000 names, right? So for the things, and, and this is just kind of a, a broad principle, to the extent that nobody else can do it is to the extent that we have to do it. Yeah? Now, there's no substitute for community. Right? So, like, so it's a little bit tricky. The first person voice uh, is a different voice. The voice of an ally is a fundamentally different voice than the voice uh, of the first person narrative. Um, and it's really tricky. It's really tricky because um, if we are the ones who are taking up the space of talking, that's often at the expense of somebody else who could really tell their story being there. The flip side of that is that it's really hard to ask somebody to tell their story, especially if they're exposed, especially if they're vulnerable, especially if they are already exhausted from just living. And it's not fair to ask, hey, can you do us a favor? It's not on them, it is on us. But then if it's on us and we show up, 
there's a, just a recognition that we're showing up and taking that space. So again, it's just emblematic of the world being broken, and there's no easy way to fix it. The best that we can do is acknowledge uh, the awkwardness and recognize that the important thing is to try to make it better. There's always space between intention and impact, right? And it's always important to check in to narrow that space. God, I think, um, models for us a lot of different ways of, of responding uh, to the universe. Um, intimacy uh, is an invitation. Uh, sorry, let's say this differently. God, I think, models intimacy as an invitation. And for example, this is what we do Friday night. We turn around, regardless of our, thank you so much, regardless of our gender identity or sexual orientation, we turn around to the Shabbos bride. And we say like, hey, I'm interested. And then we wait, not just for the absence of a no, but for some sort of enthusiastic consent. When we think about allyship, that's also on some level intimate and does require consent from those who are trying to help. Not everybody wants our help. Not everybody wants us, right, to be helpful because not everything that we think is helpful is helpful, right? People can have great intentions, but the impact sometimes falls short. Um, and so when we think about this work, it's really about relationship building. There are a couple of other kind of phrases that are thrown around in social justice communities. For example, no justice for us without us, right? If we are trying to ally up for somebody, right, we need their consent to be the representative. If somebody's saying, hey, listen, I can't reach something that's high up on a shelf, can you help me? Because you're tall, right? I'm not tall, but... And such a thing, you could ask for Shmuel, he's tall, right? So then like, that makes sense, right? But to say, hey, like you want this, maybe they don't want this, maybe they don't want your help, maybe they want to use a step stool, right? Like, so it's important where possible. There are exceptions to that. In insular communities, right, that actually uh, allow for their identity to perpetuate in part by self-segregation, don't want a seat at that table, right? In fact, if you could answer, if you could, uh, answer the question and resolve anti-Semitism against uh, Orthodox presenting people without Orthodox presenting people being at the table, I think the Orthodox would be, would be delighted. I don't need a voice in that conversation. Just fix it. If you can fix it without me, that's fantastic, right? So there are exceptions to the rule always. But one of the rules I think that doesn't have an exception is this idea that there is uh, justice can never be about just us, right? There's a way in which healthy people want to protect themselves. There's something also really healthy about thinking as oneself as not just oneself, but also as the people that we care about, our immediate family, our neighborhood, the people that identify, the people who like the same sports teams that we like, our people, right? And invariably, it's supposed to get to a place of like, we care about humanity, we care about the earth, right? Like, this earth is my earth, and so like, don't hurt it, because it hurts me, right? That's good. But if we think about only carving out space for ourselves, that like, oh, my people are doing well, I'm okay, right? So then that's not actually justice. Right? That is just self-preservation. But in terms of our relationship with God from a spiritual perspective, if we want to have a relationship with God as a parent, right, we need to protect all of God's children as our siblings. And so we can't us and them. If we're able to put their children in cages, it's because we're making a distinction that like our children and their children are not actually all of God's children. Right? Okay, I know that was a lot of words. Pause for a second. Any uh, it's a safe space, so you can push back. Uh, any thoughts um, on any, or observations or questions on anything so far before we go on to the next piece? Am I speaking fast enough for people? Should I speak faster? No? Okay, fantastic. It's just right? Amazing. I like you. You're the best. <laughs> okay, does anyone, we're just going to go into the board here. Does anyone know what, uh, what's the Hebrew word for ally? 
This is a trick question because I, I kind of made it up. Um, I don't think I made it up. I think it's real. Uh, does anyone know what's the Hebrew word for friend? It actually became relatively famous after Bill Clinton used it in a eulogy for uh, after the assassination in Israel of Rabin. Chaver, right? He said, Shalom, Chaver, goodbye, my friend. So the word Chaver, or Chaver, right, um, is not a hard word, but I think, even though we normally translate it as the word friend, I think it really means, I think it really means ally. The word Chaver really, at its core, means to attach. If uh, in the Talmud it talks about pipes which are attached to the ground, they're mechuber lekarka. Uh, an author of, of a book is a mechaber because they are attaching uh, words and thoughts to the page. There's actually a letter in the Hebrew alphabet that's known as the Vav HaChibor. It is the letter Vav that connects. This is a super hard question. Kind of looks like that's the number one. It's, um, the Vav is a, really kind of a vertical line. It's got a little thing at the top. Does anyone know where does the Vav get its name from? It's a hard question. It, it comes from a verse in the Hebrew Bible around the Mishkan. This is extra credit. The letter Vav gets its name from the Vaveha Mishkan. They were the hooks in the tabernacle that connected the pillars to the curtains. So the Vav Achibor, the Vav that connects, literally looks like a hook and was used as such in the tabernacle. And within Hebrew grammar, it's the conjunction and. It's this and this. So it connects one to the next, right? So this is known as the vav hachibur, the vav that connects. So the word chaver is really a function of connectivity. And if we think about what does it mean to be an ally, right? It's about taking the resources of privilege and attaching them to the person who needs them. Does that make sense so far? Can we take this a little bit deeper? I know that numerology and the letters are not for everybody, uh, but it is for me. So the letter Vav, so to give it a little bit of an introduction, the mystics understand that uh, the world, this world was created through speech, right? The verse says, God said and there was. So they parse the first verse as Bereshus Baruchim S, that in the beginning God created S, the Aleph and the Tuf, the Hebrew letters, the entire Hebrew alphabet, the first and the last and all the things in between. And so the very first letter of the Hebrew, uh, of the Hebrew Bible is the letter Bez. That's Bet. Now, you'll notice the letter bet is actually three vavs, right? It's also the same thing as the chet, which is the chuppah, right? It's just on its side. What's interesting about the letter vav is that there are actually three different ways to spell it. Every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is spelled, can be spelled out. So, for example, the letter bet is actually bet yud tof, which spells the word house, right? So it's not coincidental, right, that the very first letter of the Hebrew Bible is this letter Bez, which speaks to kind of uh, what's closed off all around, but because Hebrew goes right to left, that this world is essentially the place in which we're meant to commune with the divine. It also represents the smallest number of unity, which is three. If you have two parallel lines, they'll extend forever. So you need to have a third thing that attaches the two together. And this is actually um, one way of understanding why we no longer have a house of God, because if these are people and this is God, we essentially shrunk the space that we're willing to allow God to occupy to just the space of self. There was such blatant hatred for the other, there was no room for another. And so we kind of shrunk this down, squeezed God out of it, and now we no longer have a, a house of God. 
But for our conversation, what's interesting about seeing the bet as three different vavs is that there's actually three different le- ways to spell the letter vav. Vav could be vav, vav, vav aleph, vav, vav yud vav. There are actually three legitimate ways of spelling it. Within uh, the Jewish tradition, each letter has a, has a number that, is, uh, that corresponds to it. So this is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so that's two, this is the tenth, uh, and then this uh, is 400, because after you go uh, one through 10 and 10 through 100, you end up with 400 there. So this is uh, 12, this is 13, and this is 22, and it corresponds to the way that the Zohar, the early mystical work, sees that God which is here in 13, the oneness of God. This is the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and this is the 12 tribes, that God, Torah, the Jewish people are all one. And so when we think about allyship, it's not about things that are apart coming together, but it's a recognition that we are all part and one of the same. And so it's a redistribution of, right, compensating that which has been uh, inappropriately removed. Does that make sense? To say that differently, right? The most pronounced identity of any human being is that of being created in the image of God. And if you could see the image of God in front of you in a person, right, then you couldn't put them in a cage, right? You would do whatever it takes to make sure that they were healthy and fed and had a place to live, right? Because, like, this is God's child, and God put us here in community to make sure that we're all taken care of. And so it's in that dehumanization, right, in that taking away uh, of the soul of a person that allows for the horrific things that we see. And so part of allyship is, 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 is elevating that identity. Okay, we're going to try to say this in a different way that might be more familiar. It is really easy to hate people and things that you've never met or experienced. In the last 50 years, the progress for uh, around LGBT equality has been much more successful than, racial, than, than fixing racial inequality. The last 50 years has not produced the, uh, the equity within the communities of color the way, and for individuals, the way in which LGBT, the LGBT community has. And one thought of why that is, is that it's much easier to get to know somebody like them and find out that they're queer or trans than it is for somebody of color. Because as soon as you see them and you see the color, you bring your prejudice, right? And so it's really about making it personal to be able to advance the cause because it's really hard to hate somebody who you love, right? And that's why I think the greatest kind of advancement now, especially within the Orthodox world around LGBT issues, is that everybody knows somebody who's queer. It's their kid, it's their parent, it's their spouse, it's their sibling. And so allowing for that first person voice to be amplified isn't just the right thing to do, it's actually the most effective way of changing the dominant culture because now I know somebody who is, and like I like them and I care about them, right? And so in trying to make it personal, one way to do that is to see the God piece as being the most personal. I wanna pause, I know that in not all spaces is there a lot of God talk, um, and if that's part of your uh, spiritual practice and it's helpful, that's great. If not, if you want to substitute it for some sort of ethical humanism, like that, that's equally as, as valid in terms of, uh, of understanding the point. But again, just to pause, uh, any questions? Anybody's disagreeing with anybody? Any, anybody disagree with anything I'm saying? You can push back. I would love to be in conversation about this.
I did think it was really interesting initially when you when you mentioned the duality of individual action in allyship versus communal action in allyship and the, and the comparison between Jewish behavior and individualism versus communal, that that one of those things is manifested in why there is still value embedded in minyan and having minyan, not just because Torah says we need minyan and whatever, but also because there's power in numbers and that each individual has to be present for minyan to exist, but also the minyan becomes its own entity. And I find that to be very valuable when we are discussing people who you know, are, are in the, the rainbow family and, and they want to be seen individually and also recognize that they make the community what it is. And I think that that's a, a good comparison, a good duality. Thank you, yeah. And it's also important to note, like, there's no queer community, like there's no Jewish community, right? Like, right? Like we're all individuals and we all don't get along with some and we do get along with others and we all have our own story and our own journey. Um, and that's actually very similar within uh, the trans and queer community. Um, and of course, just to say this, uh, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation are different. Um, and part of being an ally is just being well-versed and understanding the nuance of the specific needs of specific communities. The needs of, even within uh, communities of color, right? There's different, uh, communities have different needs based on the geography, based on the age, based on um, you know all sorts of other kind of variables. Um, and so, in thinking about what does it mean, right? That's the other thing that's really interesting about um, kind of unity and the holiness of unity is if we think about the the moment of uh, of, of the greatest moment of holiness, perhaps uh, in the history of the human experience. Uh, well, a person could argue that it was the divine revelation where God, I see it as God's coming out speech, right? Um, and now, unfortunately, like we've forced God back into the closet and God's hidden again. Um, but it's not coincidental that the Jewish people showed up there in unity, right? And one way to see this, in fact, the medieval commentator Rashi points out on the verse that says, uh, Yisrael Negrahar, that it's in the singular, Rashi explains like one person with one heart that it was actually the unity of, and, and say it differently, the reunification uh, of our souls that allowed for God to reveal God's self, right? Because we essentially brought such holiness in our unity that God was able to be present and be in that space. Um, and so both practically, like you're saying, there's, there's strength in numbers, not just in terms of the physical, but also into the, in terms of the spiritual. Other thoughts or comments or questions? Rebuttals? Folks uh, in Aleph, uh, would love to hear from you as well if you have anything. Uh, delighted uh, for you to be part of this conversation. Uh, feel free to, 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 to write in. Any questions from you, my friend? Not yet. Not yet? Okay. Um, when we think about our own lived experience, there's a way in which it's really helpful. If, you know, God forbid we were bullied as a kid, like we're hypersensitive to what that's like for another and therefore we're motivated to, uh, to kind of step up to make sure that we know that pain, we don't want someone else to experience it. It's often harder to do that for things that we don't experience, right? That we actually have no idea what that's like. Sometimes it's easy. God forbid a person has, you know, a nut allergy. Even if you're not allergic to nuts, like it's not complicated, right? The person can't have this, it's not healthy. But sometimes it is more complicated, right? I think especially uh, for other, uh, for, for, for different generations that have different struggles, right? What it looks like to show up is different. 
and trying to recognize uh, the space of the fight as being holy as opposed to the fight itself. Meaning, the struggle 100 years ago for women to vote, right, was important and a holy act, right? But it's less about voting, voting and more about inequality, right? And so if we replace one for another, right, so then we shouldn't be less passionate about it. To say that differently, right, injustice uh, you know, anywhere is injustice everywhere. And so one of the things that's difficult um, within LGBT allyship is the way in which earlier generations of folks who uh, created space to be out as uh, queer are not so sensitive to the struggle today because it's such a different struggle. Because people worked so hard to create uh, such a safe space, young queer folks who are coming up, especially in progressive spaces, don't have the fear that a lot of the older folks had, and also as a result, don't necessarily have the appreciation for how it got there, right? It didn't happen by itself, it happened because people went to the streets, right? The first, you know, the first LGBT Pride March was a riot, right, at, at Stonewall 50 years ago, right? So, like, change doesn't happen by itself, and so often there's kind of an intergenerational um, impediment that people say like, well, I didn't need that when I was a kid, or this didn't exist when I was a kid, and that's actually not the point. It doesn't make a difference. You had other things that you were struggling for, right? The right to vote, the other, depending on how old you are, right? Um, and so one of the things that I think is tricky for folks to understand uh, is how is it that the things that we cared about in our youth that we fought for and that we achieved, right, now that have been replaced with other things, that being that that fight isn't necessarily personal for us anymore, sometimes people have a struggle acknowledging or validating or affirming the need of that struggle. Meaning the struggle is real all the time. What it looks like is absolutely person-specific, place-specific. Um, and as a result, recognizing that we have utility even without understanding. So for me, I got involved in this work a number of years ago when someone in my family said, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And I said, well, I know how I'm a boy. How do you know that you're a boy? Because it's not the same way. And uh, he said, I just am. And I couldn't gain any sort of traction because I am not aware of gender beyond my own body. And because somebody else is, I found it impossible to relate to that experience. I got to what I think is a really evolved space of knowing that I don't know, and that has been the most generative. And when we think about social justice and being an ally for things which are beyond our lived experience, which is on some level intrinsic to being an ally as opposed to just advocating for self, it's predicated on some space of not understanding. And this is the season uh, of Adar and Purim. We're supposed to get to this place of knowing that we don't know, Adalo Yada. And that is a really high level to know that we don't know. For white folks, it's not a fear when we get pulled over by the cops of getting shot. It's not our lived experience. It's, it's not our lived experience. There are a lot of things. A person who's genderqueer at the airport with a TSA, you know what that's like? to be worried about whether or not they think you're concealing something when it might just be your body? I don't know what that's like. I have no idea what it's like to have anxiety about going into a bathroom because maybe I don't present in a clear binary, right? So these are things that are called microaggressions. They are not, I mean, some of them, to, if they're intense, can, can go to, to macroaggressions. But if we think about what it's like in terms of how exhausting it is just to be out in the universe, 
right? If you picture like having some sort of backpack where a person is misgendered, there's a brick in it, right? A person is you know, being followed by the police, another brick, right? And that just gets so heavy that just taking a step is like laborious and overwhelming. So the role of an ally is to compete with micro affections and micro uh, and macro affections. What can we do to take off that burden? What can we do to help shoulder it? And that's really the idea of the chaver, of the, the person who's willing to attach. The idea that the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avis, uh, Ethics of Our Fathers, to acquire for yourself a friend, uh, is telling us don't live a life uninvested in another. You can't go through the day with somebody else's struggle not being on your radar. Because then you're just, you're, you're, not, you're not engaged, right? You're okay, and so the world's okay. But the fact that we're okay doesn't at all indicate that the world's okay. In fact, we know the world's very much not okay. So in thinking about ways to recognize that although I don't understand, I believe that it's real, and I want to understand better, also necessitates being in relationship with folks who have that lived experience to be able to understand it. It's impossible to intuit. Person, right, and there's actually, I think, a deep message here, again, about the giving of the Torah. When, the, when we experience the divine revelation, the verse tells us, the entire nation saw the sounds. So there's a word for that, synesthesia. Most people don't see sounds. We hear sounds and we see things, colors. The Torah was given over through an experience that didn't resonate with the majority of people. Because the Torah isn't just for our own experience. The Hebrew Bible, the, the ethical, moral teachings are not just about my lived experience, but they expand beyond to include all lived experiences. And there's something really powerful about that, I think. That when God revealed God's self and told us how to function, it wasn't just about how I'm supposed to be for me, but it requires us to understand what's necessary to be somebody else. And there's no substitute for that relationship building of understanding how painful somebody else's life is because it's different from ours. I want to pause because that's a lot of things. Thoughts? I want to ask you, um, how do you, what advice do you give in a time right now where folks want to be allies, but then, like, especially in like progressive movements, like they'll be like, yeah, I side with immigrants, um, but not gay people. Yeah. Or, yes, I stand for my LGBT community, but only if they have documentation. Yeah. So, like, when you want to build true communal effort, like, what advice do you give to folks who want to bring everybody into the table and try to break down that otherism that, oh, I don't want to side with that? Because I feel like that's one of the biggest issues in our society right now. Yeah. Where um, we only want to follow one thing, but we don't understand that systems of oppression are cyclical. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great question. There's no, um, I think it's so important to get people together, especially people who don't see the world the same way, right? Uh, not to be too political, but you know, Bernie Sanders uh, is not going to APAC, right? Now, people can, reasonable people can disagree about Israel. Really reasonable people can have reasonable disagreements about Israel. And if you can't come together and talk about it, it's likely not to get better. So not to be critical of, of his decision, it's impactful that he's not going. Him not going is making a statement. But there's also a, a big, another statement, without judgment, there's also another statement of showing up and saying, I want to share my worldview on this. I think there's a distinction between 
I'll say this in, in, in the form of, uh, of uh, some of the commentary on, on the biblical narrative of Genesis. When God created this world, the verse tells us, the commentators, Rashi, God wanted to create this world through a strict attribute of judgment. God wanted to be in a relationship where there could be expectations and consequences. But then God also saw in the world of action, we're just not, we're just not that good, right? It, it, like, we couldn't get through the first day. And so God kind of prefaced it with this uh, attribute of mercy, of rachamim. And that's why there are two different names of God deployed in the verse. And so the commentators point out that to this day, there's still two different lanes that on the world of desire and want, uh, there's a strict attribute of judgment. And in the world of action, there's uh, a more merciful one. Because if you want to know why I'm not healthy... I can explain. There's a lot of reasons. There's all-you-can-eat buffets, right? There's something good, like, on Netflix, whatever it is. Uh, so you want to know why? But, like, how do you defend, like, no, I want to be obnoxious. I want to be hurtful. I want, right? So if we want the same things, I want schools to be free from gun violence. Reasonable people can disagree on how to get there in the world of action. How do we achieve safe spaces for kids, Right? So I think in having conversations with people, do you want kids that, that are undocumented, right, to live in fear? Like, is that what you want? Like, do you want kids not to go to school? Do you want kids to not report abuse, right, because they're worried? Like, do you not want people to answer questions on the census, right? Like, what happens when you uh, are taking this position in the world of action? So what I find to be helpful is, can we agree that Palestinians are entitled to human dignity? All right, can, are we, can, we, can we agree that Israelis are equally entitled to human dignity, right? Peace is a good thing. We don't want kids getting blown up regardless of what side of the fence. Then you can have a conversation of like, okay, so how do we achieve that? And people can disagree. But if we, want, if we don't want the same things, right, then we can't have the conversation. And one of the things that's interesting about the work um, in combating homophobia and transphobia and also anti-Semitism um, is the way in which information can be used to be persuasive. Right? Deborah Lipstadt writes a lot about how if a person is a Holocaust denier, showing them another piece of evidence is not helpful. Right? If somebody thinks the world is flat, right, showing them another picture from the moon is not going to be helpful. Right? So you can say, okay, don't go on a boat. Right? Like, but we can't have the same conversation, right? Because it might fall off the edge of the earth, right? right? But like, you can't have the same conversation because we're not given, we're not, we can't have the same given. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. I think most people have the same givens, right? A person came here undocumented. Do we think that they should, right, that there should be a path forward where they're not living in that place, all the, the, that, the, the, that anxiety constantly? Do we think that they should have access to, like, medicine? Like, like I think if you say, like, do you, what do you, like, think should... So, okay, so then we can have a conversation like that. So you think it's better to do it like this? So then you're actually able to create some scaffolding to support some sort of, like, science-based or information-based discussion, right? Let's, let's talk about gun, gun violence, right? So what in America, in any specific location, has worked? What hasn't worked? Like, what are the policies, right? Because if we want the same things, we should be able to sit at the same table. And I think that's where the breakdown is. Because we use these things, like, if you can talk about Israel and put that on a placard, right? Like, and that's your Israel view, right? 
there's not enough time in the day to talk about my perspective on Israel. Like, and, it, and it might shift by the end of the day from the beginning. Like, it's, it's not simple. These, all of these issues are really complicated. But what, what is simple, right, is what hopefully we can rally behind in terms of, uh, in terms of the givens. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but... Please. Another way to frame that, consistent, I think, with what you're saying, but with a little bit more detail. I hearken back to the, the groundbreaking uh, book back in the maybe late 70s on negotiation called Getting to, Getting to Yes, yeah, sure, out of the Harvard. I read it. Right. And uh, the authors there talk about the difference between interests and positions. And interests are what you described as maybe the underlying motivations uh, behind what somebody wants. And a position is a predetermined outcome that somebody wants. And the motivation, the interest, lies beneath that. Um, and the position is an expectation already of what the outcome should be. And to the extent we can get down to the interests and discuss, discuss the interests, then maybe we can uh, align on positions on how to get there. Yeah. So that's just another way of looking at it based upon yeah. some historical literature. Yeah, thank you. No, it's, and it's also not a thick book. It's, uh, if, if anyone wants to read it, it's, it's a relatively small book, uh, which is why I read it. Um, but no, it was actually, it's really helpful. It's very insightful, um, and I appreciate that. Um, one of the other struggles, and I think this is something that um, all communities suffer from, is this purity test of like, are you there enough? Right? Are you progressive enough? Are you conservative enough? Right? Are you pro-Israel enough? Are you, right? There are a lot of different ways to be a Zionist, a Zionist, and there are a lot of ways to be not anti-Semitic and not be a Zionist. Right? Um, and so one of the, one of the things that I think is really interesting is the the Judaism's perspective on incremental advancement. Right? It is not an all or nothing in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Right? Let's say, for example, a person um, didn't have a Jewish education in their youth. And then as an adult, they're like, hey, I'm really interested, I want, right, to reach some sort of level of self-sufficiency and proficiency that maybe parallels their secular academic achievements. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are. You can't do that overnight. It can't happen in a moment. It can't. So um, the Torah even tells us uh, about the Torah itself. Uh, in Deuteronomy, it says uh, that the Hebrew Bible is not in outer space. It's not on the other side of the, the ocean. Uh, it's not far away. It's actually exceedingly close, right? It's like right here for us to be able to learn and to, to teach. And so when I was in the mirror in Yerushalayim, uh, a rabbi of mine asked that you need, you need directions for things which are close enough that you could get lost, right? It's not the third door, it's the fourth door, right? But here we're talking literally about the two furthest things, right? That which is right in your heart and that which is on the other side of the world. Why did the Torah think that we could make such a mistake, that it needed to give us the directions? And so he answered it with a medrash, uh, homiletic teaching um, about uh, two people who go into a study hall. One person is a fool and one person is wise. The fool walks into the study hall and says, wow, there are all these books. There's a, you know, a mixture between Hebrew and Aramaic. There's no capitalization. There's no punctuation. It's never going to happen, right? And they turn around and they leave. And they never learn and they remain foolish their whole life. The wise person comes in and says, yeah, but you know what? There's a finite number of pages. I'll learn two today. Right? I'll learn two chapters tomorrow, and at some point I'll finish the entire thing. So there are a lot of, I think, insights from that teaching, the difference between the short term and the long term, but there's something about 
the wise perspective of recognizing that it's not going to get fixed tonight or today, but that doesn't get in the way of me doing what I can today. Yeah? And like that's something that I think people have a hard time with. Oh, you're, you're pro this, you're anti that? Okay. Well, if we have a conversation, maybe we'll both be closer to better understanding this. And maybe if we have another conversation and another conversation. And I think that when we think about like policies of inclusivity or exclusivity, dismantling even a little bit is a different, right? People come to rabbis or to counselors all the time. It's very rare that you can like fix everything. It's impossible to fix everything. But if you can fix 1% of it, it's a different problem. And more than that, we can be optimistic that if we took away 1% today, maybe we can take away 1% tomorrow. And there's reasons to reinvest, right? And it's encouraging. So everybody is evolving. Everything is in transition. There's a long-term approach that if we engage, especially with people who see the world differently than we do, hopefully we can get to know them as good people because they're good people who disagree with us, right? Um, and then we can advance the cause. But it's that relationship building and it's that long-term approach with a recognition that real change takes time. Even God, when God created the world, right, it wasn't in a moment. However you understand the creation narrative, right, it took some time because things which are real take time. Yeah, please. The type of allyship I think we're discussing is predicated, if you would tell me if you agree, on the, on the trait of humility. Yeah. There's another type of allyship, which I think is, a, is, is also based on humility, but also based on primarily on courage, that which there's a lot to lose as an ally. Not just social capital, but other, other bits, um, those who have engaged in acts of civil disobedience or like. I wonder to what extent you understand within the Torah discourse, particularly the halakhic discourse, um, the balance between self-preservation versus responsibilities as an ally. You know, if you look at, if DACA was taken away and people were to, were to house people, um, for example, where there would be serious legal, even perhaps criminal uh, prosecutions involved, yeah. or on the LGBT issue as well, where one were to take a stand uh, let's say, discrimination in the workplace, where they put their own job at risk. How do you understand the, the, the mandate to protect self versus... Uh, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a great question. So I want to answer this like in three different spaces briefly. One is that within contemporary or traditional halakhic literature, there are discussions about putting oneself at risk to save another. For example, somebody's drowning, God forbid. And like, if you go, jump in there, there's a chance you could save them, there's a chance you could also drown. Is a person allowed to? Is a person obligated to, right? So that's kind of the framework which I think uh, is really helpful for this. Um, in short, a person is never obligated in putting their, their life at risk uh, for another, and a person is, often, is prohibited uh, in sacrificing their own life for another in that way if it's definitive. And then in places of doubt, right, so that's where there's a lot of wiggle room. Um, so I've, some, I've, I've been arrested, um, I think c civil disobedience, uh, for those who feel privileged to do it as a straight white cis male, uh, being who I am, um, it's not scary for me to get arrested. Um, and so I've done it and um, it is for me a spiritual practice. Um, and the third piece, uh, which I think is really interesting as a place to look, is how do we see, especially in Israel, the way in which even the leaders of the generation um, ask of their students and disciples uh, to sit in the streets to protest and to get arrested for things that they think are immoral or against the tradition. Um, and what's interesting is that it almost always happens around the army, right? So being forced into the army in Israel is something 
that because it affects them is something that they take very personal and because of all of the implications of religious practice. But the frame of we see this, this, this law as being unjust, right? And therefore, we're going to put our bodies on the line and sit in the streets in black traffic and maybe get arrested shows, right? We could debate whether or not that, that issue is one that's worth fighting for. But what's clear is that they, they believe that if the issue is worth fighting for, you're absolutely perhaps even obligated to get, go to the streets. And I think that it is, like, we don't really look to, like, the, the Hasidic world uh, or, like, in Mea Sharim or, but you have great rabbis that are saying, um, you know, go to jail, get arrested. It's something that for us is immoral. It's for us unjust. And so, therefore, go to the streets. So, yeah, I think that, that nonviolent um, resistance can be part of spiritual practice. And one thing that we haven't spoken about yet, and, and, um, and if you have a follow-up question, let's, let's take it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you have a follow-up question, so let me just say this last piece and then we'll continue. Yeah, one of the things that I think that we don't um, focus enough uh, on broadly in social justice is the role of joy as part of resistance, right? This is so exhausting. This is so draining. Every single day the news is worse. Like without exception, every single day the news is worse. So what kind of healthy person like, wants, right? You have, to, you have to be a masochist to turn on the news. Like it, it's, it's so painful. So how do, you, how do we like, create like, a respite? How do we create? So one of my teachers and my boss, uh, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, was uh, the rabbi at CBST during the height of the AIDS crisis uh, in the early 90s. And she's still there now. But at that time, they had lost 40% of the congregation to AIDS. And uh, it's part of uh, the history of the synagogue. It's part of uh, the history of people of privilege in this country not caring about those uh, suffering uh, and the victims of AIDS. Um, but Shabbos was always a time that even though everybody knew somebody who was sick or they themselves were sick or they were mourning or they were taking care of somebody, it was a time to say, we're here in community to recharge, to rejuvenate, um, to be able to kind of recalibrate. Joy as spiritual resistance, joy as political resistance is not just part of self-care, but it's actually a deterrent and a response to the aggression of uh, the abrasiveness of just the unrelenting onslaught of bad news. If today it's more egregious than yesterday, in their minds it's another layer that's been stripped away, that they are weakening the resolve of, they are demoralizing those who care. And so to be able to say like, we're here, and we see this as a partnership with God. Just as God responded to the initial darkness with light, so too we are here as a light to be able to push away the darkness. And our tradition teaches that a little bit of light dispels the darkness because the light is real. And when we can feel that closeness, that intimacy with God, it is so rejuvenating, it is so uh, restorative that there's a way in which we're able to kind of harness that superpower and feel that although it's horrific that we have to do this, we can do it with a smile. Please. Um, as you were speaking, I was immediately thinking of um, Salah Imenu and um, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and how you know she is known in, in my circles as the sacred fool um, because her, her response to being told she's finally gonna have a kid after so many years is that she laughs hysterically like this is a giant joke. But to take the idea of sacred laughter, um, I, I think of, of Sarah Imeno in terms of like this woman for decades and decades having to support Abraham 
and feed his guests and take care of his tent and welcome people in whether she wants to or not. And she has no children to take care of herself. So all of these guests effectively become her family, whether she's never met them or knows them 50 years. And, and to have to force yourself to find a new way to find joy when you're bitterly miserable that you don't have children, which was such an immense value statement on your identity, and still forcing your mind towards, I still need to find joy, I still need to make, make this a sacred place for whoever needs to come. Um, it's very much, especially during the AIDS crisis, something that could make or break a person that day. Um, and as you were speaking, it's, that's the first thought that came to mind, is being the sacred fool, there's actually been uh, protests and, and parades where uh, allies and, and protesters, especially Jewish uh, protesters, dressed up as clowns uh, to combat the um, KKK and the Nazis that were in that parade. And they would come up to them and laugh with their red noses and you know pull scarves and flowers and whatever to, to mock and to create silliness around it. And it just drained all their power. Yeah. And that's a totally viable way to lift people up when they're just exhausted and yeah. them also. Yeah, it's, um, there are a lot of different ways uh, to be an ally. And it's interesting, the Mishnah also in Pekiavas recognizes uh, the, the person specific, the personal uh, aspect of this. There's a great teaching that says um, that somebody who's like very bashful or shy um, should be, you know, their place is in the base medrash and somebody who is like audacious and um, perhaps even like chutzpahdik uh, they end up in Gehenna, right? Which is not a good place. So Rabbi Arna Gadol, the uh, Rabbi Arna Karlin gives a fantastic, fantastic interpretation that if it's your personality, that like you're really just very shy, right? So what sh should your contribution be, right? You can make a contribution to the base measures. Sit and learn and like that's great for the universe. You have that like audacity, like your chutzpah so then you can go into like the proverbial Gehenna of this world to a march against the KKK and be like very much that kind of audacity uh, of, of spirituality and, and you know, that kind of personality. So I think in general, when we think about character trait development, it's important to work where you're weak, but in the world and our contributions, you wanna compete where you're strong. Like I'm a horrible speller, wouldn't be the best English teacher, right? But I do other things well, right? So, my, so in thinking about allyship, um, there's both like the need that it doesn't make a difference who you are, right? That like if somebody's in need, like, right? And, and again, Jewish law recognizes this. As a default, uh, a person should be engaged in spiritual pursuits of just learning or whatever is good for them in their spiritual practice. Um, and therefore, a person who's engaged in that is actually forbidden from stopping to like go do like random acts of kindness unless there's no one else to do it. There's a phrase, it's a, if something is, right? There's somebody who needs help crossing the street. You're sitting and learning. Someone else can help them and is available. You should learn and do what you're doing and let somebody else who's not engaged in that do it. But nobody else can do it, then you have to do it. So sometimes you have to like stretch yourself in, in places that are uncomfortable because the moment demands it. But when there's options and when there's time, um, then a person should really think about, again, to the extent that something cannot be done by anybody else is really to the extent that we should kind of hone in on it. Um, it is a great observation, though, that like her, that she had the capacity to laugh, right? That that even though it was such a hard life, and it was such a hard life, that her closeness uh, and that consistency of goodness, right? The verse speaks that like her life was actually really good, right? It was filled with goodness, right? That it's the redundancy of 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 the word in the verse, and the verse even because of the way in which it's partial, she was hundred and twenty, 
right? That, there, that, that, that closeness of God that right now I'm doing the will of God provided some sort of stable baseline even though there were real struggles and adversity. But just having the capacity to laugh. We're living in really scary times. It's really scary times. And it doesn't make a difference if it's the scariest it's ever been, right? Or if it's been scary or it's super scary, right? And there's no shortage of things that need immediate care and there's not enough, right? So if we have faith that one, God runs the world and it's gonna be okay, and the other side of that, that faith in our tradition is a call to action. It's not just enough to love peace, but you have to pursue it. And if you have the faith that you're partnering with the infinite source of the universe that has unlimited resources, is literally the source of all resources, so then we can have a certain confidence and know that we can take on that precarity to do the right thing, and it's going to be okay. Please. How do you understand um, bringing in one, a, a minority bringing in their own vulnerability into someone else's cause? Let me give uh, like two examples. Like, you know, let's say you're at an immigrant rights rally and someone is, you know, making the Palestinian issue central within the immigrant rights issue. Or said differently, let's say a white Jew walks into like a person of color meeting space and says, "Well, I'm also vulnerable as a Jew." Yeah. And they say, "Well, I see you as a white person." You know. So how so how do different minorities ally in a way where they honor their own vulnerability? while standing for someone else. Yeah, it's often very tricky. Um, I would say if you're invited to the space, like that's a good space, like I've spoken at, at Black Lives Matter rallies, but you can't go there uninvited to speak, right? Because it's not your space. Um, there is intersectionality that's real. Um, oppression is bad, dehumanizing people is bad. Um, if you take steps back from wherever the thing is, uh, you'll end up in a place that there's a shared issue, right? It's often just not seeing people as people. Um, and so in those spaces, it's, uh, it's really fair to come together. Also, one of the things that I think is complicated around segregated spaces um, is the intention, is, this part's not complicated, is the intentionality, right? Um, what's the difference between, let's say, a pride march for the LGBT community and a white pride march, right? So the simple answer is, if you have more, if you have more, right, it's not complicated, right? right? Or, or for example, you know, having, um, you know, a black caucus is different than, right, um, you know, having a straight uh, pride march, right? So if society is already giving you more than most, right, you don't get to advocate for the advancement of your people, right, because it's at the expense of, right, those who don't have the minimum. Um, and so if we think about what it's like to advocate for equality, right, so then I think that's appropriate in terms of segregation, meaning if both sides of the segregated uh, space are saying we're coming together as who we are to fight for equality, right? So then I think segregated spaces are good uh, or can be helpful. When there are places and people who already have more than most are, are advocating for more and not incorporating those who have less, so then that's where all the icky stuff happens. As a rule, though, um, I think it's important to, uh, to stay in one's lane at these things, right? The Palestinian conflict, the Israeli conflict, immigration, climate change, these are like on some level connected because they're all affect each other in the way in which we are sensitive to the needs of those around us. Um, but just like, you know, caring about breast cancer is not in contradiction, right, to caring about, um, I don't know, any other sort of cancer, um, right? Pancreatic cancer, right? They're different tracks and they require a different, I'm not a doctor, but I would assume that there's a different protocol depending on what's right. So all cancers are bad, right? And all injustices are bad. And there's an appropriate time and place to talk about each one. 
And I think that there is kind of a flattening of the, the nuanced conversation, which is deep and complicated about how to advance these causes when they all just get, you know, they get, like, there's, like voter suppression is real. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. It's not unrelated to all the other big problems. But you show up at one kind of conference to talk about one and you're hearing about the other, it's not helpful. And you know the average life expectancy of a trans woman of color in this country is just 35 years old. And as a community, we own that. Like, it's, it's unacceptable and we own it. That's different than all the other things which are unacceptable and things that we, we can't tolerate, we have to fix. But to try to like go to the, to, to, to answer the question um, which is specific to one um, tragedy uh, with another is I think just not helpful. And of course there's shared dehumanization at the top. I think we're basically out of time. Do we have, oh. Okay. If there was one more question I could take it, but if not. There was one more. Yeah, please. Great. Fantastic. Yeah, great. Okay. Right. okay. So our friend from Aleph, uh, Gita is asking, um, about facing anger as an ally, anger from targeted groups and how to serve as an ally in a context of targeted groups expressing anger and how to navigate our path. Um, okay, I wanna make sure that I understand the question. Sometimes there's backlash from the people that we're trying to help. So if the anger is coming from those that we're trying to help, the best thing to do is to engage in a conversation that's respectful to say, listen, I'm here to help. If I'm not helping, so then I'm doing what I, what I wanna do wrong, meaning I'm not doing what I wanna do, so let me know how I can be more helpful. Um, and sometimes the response is, it's actually not my job to help you. Okay, but if you have the energy to be uh, vocal, to say that, uh, that this is not good, um, sometimes that's all the energy a person has. If there's energy to, to be able to be constructive, like this is what would make it good, right? Because when people are trying to help, right, that's not a small thing either. Um, but yeah, I mean, not everybody uh, who's trying to help is helpful. Um, so I would say in general, uh, navigating it through personal relationships is the best because uh, then one, you're more sensitive to the needs, the really specific needs, right? There's this thing called like helicopter, uh, right? Uh, what's it called? Because it's used for, it's misappropriate in a lot of places, but you know, that to come into somebody else's territory, right? The community where they've been doing like the street activism and the grassroots work, you know, for decades and you just show up and like do your own thing, it can often be very destructive to the relationship building, to understanding who are the invested partners, you know, who are the people that are really doing this day in and day out. And there are people who get attention because of who they are. Um, and, they, and they don't necessarily give the, um, the, 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 the accolades to the, the people who are doing this when nobody's looking. Um, so I think there's no substitute for uh, being on the ground day in and day out, having relationship building uh, as the core of this, and then you're able to respond in present tense with your fingers on the pulse, especially when you're asked, which is, again, this is often an act of intimacy, right? And so that requires an invitation. Great. Okay, thanks so much. Awesome, thanks, friends. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures. 
like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.